we are uh, we are in Genesis chapter 15 and uh, actually we kind of got started a little bit in it a couple weeks ago in the first couple three verses or so and then last week we looked more at those first six verses and uh, today we'd like to pick it up uh, beginning in verse 7 and uh, down through the end of the chapter. This is, a, uh, this is a passage that I have been very eager to get to <laughs> and been waiting for months for us to get to this passage. So, uh, I trust, I hope the Lord will encourage you guys as much from this uh, story about Abram and this covenant as I've been encouraged as I've been thinking about it. Actually, like I say, for a number of months. Uh, let's pick up in chapter 15 in verse 1 and just read the entire chapter. And, uh, and then we'll do just a brief bit of review and go on from there. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you, and Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid, them, laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cabanite, 
and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canite and the Gergesite and the Jebusite. Okay? Okay, going back and just kind of looking at those first six verses, uh, by way of review, what do you remember? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. And there's a big difference between those two things. <laughs> faith and faith is uh, is uh, kind of a mad circle, but faith in God is not. What else? Everyone's concerned about the reward from God since he didn't have any heirs. Okay, okay. He's wondering what kind of reward God is going to give him. Incidentally, a question came up last week and, and I didn't want to take time to answer it last week because uh, we were short on time. But... But I, I believe in the King James it says... Uh, uh, does somebody have a King James here by any chance? I believe in the King James it says, uh, uh, it says something in effect that I will be your great reward or I am your great reward. And, and the question was raised, is that, what he's, is that what he's saying there or is he referring to some other reward that he intends to give? And certainly we wouldn't argue with the fact that God is our great reward. But uh, and it's a little bit ambiguous in the Hebrew as to exactly how it ought to be translated. But in the context, it's pretty clear that Abram understood that there was some other reward that he that he should receive other than just the Lord Himself. Okay, so that that's pretty clear from the context. So so I think the translation there is, is uh, in the New American or the New International probably is the preferable translation. The idea that there's going to be an additional reward in addition to to him receiving the Lord as his reward, there is an additional reward that God is promising him and Abram wants to know what that's going to be since he does not have uh, uh, an heir. He doesn't have a child yet. Okay? What else? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the Scripture is very clear that, that children are, are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward. And I think that's true in every circumstance. I think children that are born illegitimately are still a reward from the Lord. And, uh, and I think that, as we, uh, that if we view them that way, it will change our whole perspective, our whole perspective on a lot of things. Okay? All children, I believe, are a gift from the Lord. Okay? What else? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about why Abram had to wait so long for this promise to be fulfilled. And we talked about two reasons why he might have had to wait. And I think both are, both are legitimate. Both are probably reasons. One of them is a matter of timing, that God is doing a lot of things. Okay? We're going to see that very clearly in the passage we look at today. That, that other things that God is doing necessitate it taking time for him to fulfill the promise, okay? So, uh, and, and admittedly, God could do, if he wanted to, could do everything right now, but he, but he, chooses, to, uh, he chooses not to, and, and part of the reason is because of some of these other things that are important to God that he's trying to accomplish. Uh, so, that's one reason. But the other reason why God waits in, in Abraham's life, and I think he waits in our lives too, to fulfill the promise, is, is to bring Abram 
to this point of just a complete awareness of his own weakness and inability and inadequacy. So he gets to the point where he realizes, I'm dead. I just don't have it in me to have a child and neither does my wife. And I think God does the same thing in our own lives oftentimes that he, that he waits to fulfill his promises to us until we are so clear in our own minds that it is none of us and it is all of him. Okay? What else? Yeah. Yes. And um, I think that it's probably just a real distant reason, you know, that things don't happen in time as far as to the ultimate thing. We can look there and see that sometimes it does take a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And that can be a comfort to us. Yes. That, um, yes, those promises are answered, and we just have to continue to have faith, even if it seems like it will never be. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, Paul makes that explicitly clear in Romans 4 in reference to this event. That one of the reasons things happened the way they did in Abram's life was for our sakes. So, so clearly God is using Abram as an example of the life of faith for us. Okay? <clears throat> Anything else? What was Abram's response to this promise of God? He believed it. Okay? He just simply believed it. That God was going to give him an heir from his own body and ultimately that he would have descendants as, as innumerable as the stars. When God saw Abram's faith, what did God do? He credited it to him as righteousness. Okay. And we were very careful last week to draw the distinction <clears throat> That faith, <clears throat> faith is not a work. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans. That faith and works are mutually exclusive. Okay? So as we talked about last week, faith is not kind of you know, on the, in the hierarchy of works. Faith is clear up here at the top. And all these other works really don't save us. But this ultimate work of faith does save us. That's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that works are over here and faith stands over here by itself. And when God sees our faith, He reckons it or He accounts it. It's actually an accounting term that He uses there in Genesis and in Romans. He, he actually reckons it or accounts it as righteousness. So, so in God's great ledger book, there is the name of Abram, and as you go across the row from the name from across the row from the name Abraham, over here on the right-hand margin in the column over there on the right side is written the word faith. And God gets his pencil out and he takes his eraser and he erases, erases the word faith and writes in the word righteous. And he reckons his faith as righteousness, and he does the same thing for you and I. That he looks and when he sees our faith, he reckons our, work, our faith as righteousness. And, and, and the other distinction we, that I thought was important that we make last week is that when God looks at our faith, he does not reckon it as a righteous deed. He does not reckon it as a righteous work. He reckons us as in being in a state of righteousness, holiness and perfection equal to his own. And that's what Scripture teaches us. We have, by the reckoning of God because of our faith, 
the righteousness of Christ. Now, that is pretty stunning. Okay. And the question that arises in my mind when I think about that is how does God do that? How does God take a sinner like me or a sinner like Abram or a sinner like you? How does it happen when God <clears throat> looks at us and, and we just simply give up in desperation and in a recognition of our own inability to live a righteous life that pleases Him and throw ourselves completely upon His mercy? How is it that this holy, perfect, righteous God can look on nothing but my faith or nothing but the faith of Abram and reckon that to be a state of righteousness equal to that of his own son. How does he do that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, how does God bring, how does God bring things to such a place that he can reckon us righteous? Okay? And that really <clears throat> is some of the lesson that we learn <clears throat> from today's lesson. So we pick up then in verse 7. After God has now reckoned Abram as righteous because of Abram's faith. Abram has believed God, has believed the promise of God in regard to his descendants. And with, because of that faith, God has reckoned him righteous and he now stands in a right relationship with God. At this point, now God can move forward with what he really wants to do with Abram. Okay? So he's already articulated now or re-articulated and we've seen that he's kind of repeats and God periodically comes to Abram and repeats this twofold promise to Abram on several occasions. Okay, He began there at Haran or possibly in Ur, but certainly in Haran. He comes and he tells, God, he tells Abram about these great things he's going to do. And it's a twofold, basically a twofold promise. And the promise is, one, that he would have an heir and ultimately then a multitude of descendants. That's the first part. The second part of the promise of God to Abram is that his descendants, that Abram and his descendants would inherit or possess this land of Canaan. Okay? So the two-part promise is an heir and land. And he is already now in the first part of chapter 15, God has already restated this promise of an heir. Okay? And so now God moves forward to, to tell Abram also again to remind Abram of this great promise of, inher of, of inheriting the land or possessing the land. Okay? So he starts into the second part of the promise. Now, as we mentioned back when God brought up the first part of the promise in the first part of the chapter and he talked about the fact that Abram was going to have an heir, that touched a sensitive Nerve in Abram, okay? Because he has no children. He doesn't see any prospect of having any children. And so when God says <clears throat> that, that he's, that he's going to have this, that this promise is going to be fulfilled of him having children, that he's going to have a great reward, Abram's, the sensitive nerve is touched in Abram and he goes, Lord, what are you going to give me since I don't have a, since I don't have an heir? I don't have a descendant, okay? And so Abram is prompted to question God, to ask God, well, how's this going to happen since I don't have an heir? Okay, well, God resolves that issue. But now the Lord touches another sensitive nerve in Abram. Okay, and that is this thing about the land because God told Abram, listen, you get up and you go to this land I'm going to show you. And then when he gets down there, he gets to the land that, God's going to sh that God shows him. Then he gets there and God says to him, okay, I'm going to give it to you. And at another point, as we've seen, he tells Abram, okay, Abram, you go, go for a walk. Walk all over this land. Walk north to south. Walk east to west. Every place your foot steps, 
I'm going to give it to you. And Abram has presumably done that. He's obeyed God and he's walked all over <clears throat> this whole land of, of Canaan and he's walked over this promise. But here we are now, ten years later, and there's absolutely no indication at all of any way that he could ever possibly possess this land. He's just one guy. Sure, he's got a nice little army of 300 guys. It's pretty impressive. But, but we're talking about all these other people that live in the land. And he names at the end of this chapter, he names 10 different tribal groups that live in the land, possess the land. They all have armies. They all have uh, fortresses, etc., etc. And it's just... And, and they have a rightful claim to the land. They lived there before Abram got there. And it's just absolutely inconceivable to Abram ten years after the prom, initial promise that, that there's any way this could happen. And so Abram once again asks God, he says, well, Lord, how am I going to know? Now notice again, how does he address the Lord here? Pardon? Uh, in uh, yes, verse eight. Adonai Yahweh again, just the way he did the first time he asked. Remember, we talked about that back in verse uh, uh, two. Okay, that he that that when he comes to God, he doesn't understand how the promise is going to be fulfilled, and he wants to understand. He wants assurance from God, but he doesn't come arrogantly. He doesn't come pompously. He doesn't come with a demand. He comes with this great sense of reverence. Adonai Yahweh, my Lord and my God. Okay? And he recognizes God's lordship. And he comes to God asking God questions. He's struggling with his faith. Tremendous lesson here for us because we all get here. We all end up in these places where we're really struggling with faith. And we really need to ask God some questions, some hard questions. And I've been taught, and you've probably been taught, that it's a sin to question God. But we certainly don't see Abram being rebuked for questioning God here two times in a row. But one of the keys is the sense of reverence and dependence and obedience and submission that Abram exhibits as he questions God. So he comes to God with this sense of, God, how can I know this? But there's this, there's this attitude of, of Adonai Yahweh, you are my Lord, you are my God, whatever answer you give, I will be satisfied with. Whatever you tell me, I will submit to. Okay? That's the attitude with which he comes. But he desperately wants something. And he asks God for that. Now the question is, what does Abram want? He wants to know, right? How will I know? He wants assurance. What is Abram, uh, what is Abram not asking for? How are you going to do this? He doesn't ask how, and but more importantly, he doesn't ask when. when. He doesn't ask him to do it now. In other words, what's significant to me about Abram is at this point, he's asking for assurance. He's not asking for the promise. He's not saying to God, God, I've got to have the land now. I mean, Lord, I, I really need this land now. I'm getting old and I've got to get things set up. I've got to get things organized, you know. I've got to figure out how I'm going to divide it to my, 
inheritance, my heirs, you know, that you promised me. I've got to get all this organized and figured out. So, Lord, I need some answers now. Have you ever done that? I do it all the time. I have this timetable figured out when God's got to get, you know, Lord, okay, Lord, I'll give you a week. But by the end of this week, I need some answers. Because the bill collectors are coming or the, or the crisis is going to hit or whatever. And I've got to have answers by the end of this week. So I'll give you the end of the week. Yeah. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I do it all the time. Yeah. And how often times does God succumb to that demand? <laughs> Almost never. Some, sometimes He humors us and does, but usually He doesn't. But Abram doesn't do that, does he? And so one of the things we learn about Abram is that his questioning is in fact a demonstration of his faith. You see that? His, his questioning is not a demonstration of his lack of faith. His question is, is, is a demonstration of his faith because what he's saying to God is he's saying, like that dear old guy in the, in the New Testament when the Lord comes to him and, 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 he, and, he, and he needs healing for his son and, and he says to the Lord, Lord, if you could do this, you, 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 you heal him. And the Lord says, if I can, <laughs> all things are possible to him who believes. And the guy says, what? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think that's exactly what Abram's doing here. I think Abram is saying here, Lord, I believe, but I really need, I need, I need some help, God. If, I, if I'm going to go through this for however long I need to go through it, I'm going to need some help. I really need some assurance. And I want you to notice that when Abram walks out of chapter 15, he walks out with no more than he entered with. He walks out with only the Word of God. That's all he leaves with. It's the same thing he enters the chapter with. But he does leave with much more assurance because of how that Word of God came to him. But remember at the beginning of chapter 15, when we're introduced to chapter 15, he tells us that the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Okay, And so this whole thing is a vision that constitutes the Word of the Lord. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, Abram has, in one sense, nothing more substantial than he had before. All he has is the Word of God. But it has come to him now with a force and with a clarity that gives him this assurance that he's going to need to be able to deal with the fact that he, in his lifetime, will never see the promise of the land fulfilled. As we learn in the book of Hebrews. Okay. Well... So, so this is Abram's crisis. Uh, first was the crisis about his heir, and the second is the crisis about the land and how is all this going to be fulfilled? How is this going to be, or, 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 or what, what are you going to do, God, to build my faith up so that I can, so that I can, can wait however long, however long I need to wait? Now, what is interesting is that God has begun to answer his question before he even asks it. I don't know if you noticed, but I skipped ahead. I went right to verse 8 when we started talking about this passage, and I skipped verse 7, and there's a reason for that. Verse 7 is really interesting. Verse 7 has a particular form to it. Now, you'll remember, because I made sure you wouldn't forget... That we've been talking over the last many number of weeks as we've been going through Genesis, we've been talking about this idea of covenant 
and I've been beating this like a drum, right? And you keep wondering, Rick, when are you going to get off of it? Well, I may never get off of it, but actually I've had a method to my madness. Because all these things we've been saying about covenant over these many weeks, we have had to say in preparation for this lesson today. In order to understand what's actually transpiring here today in this lesson, we had to understand all this stuff about covenant. Okay? So what are the, some of the things we know about covenant that we have discovered as we've been going through Genesis? Okay, you're getting ahead of me now. You're getting ahead of me. <laughs> What have, we, what have we learned so far about covenants in general, culturally speaking? Okay, it's an agreement between two or more people. Okay, what else do we know? Okay, there's two kinds of covenants. There's parity covenants or treaties and there's vassal, suzer uh, and vassal covenants or treaties. Okay? A parity treatment treaty is a treaty or a covenant between two people of generally equal standing. And a, and a suzerain vassal treaty would be a, a treaty or a covenant between a great, powerful, military, you know, political kingdom and his little, little other little kingdoms that he'd go and conquer. And a classic example of that we've already seen, we saw it in chapter 14, was the, was the uh, <clears throat> suzerain vassal treaty between Ketelamar and the uh, five kings of the Pentapolis there at the southern end of the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities. Which, and they were obviously in a, a suzerain vassal treaty with King Ketelamar from Mesopotamia. Okay? And the whole reason for that war in chapter 14 was they had breached what? They had breached, huh? Okay, they, they, they breached the tribute, which was a breach of... Pardon? The covenant is a breach of Hesed, covenant faithfulness. Okay? We talked about covenant faithfulness, which, uh, which is in the Hebrew is, uh, is, uh, is represented by the word hesed. Okay, has the idea of covenant faithfulness or covenant love. And, and this covenant faithfulness had been breached by the five kings of the Pentapolis. And down comes Ketelamar to settle the score. Okay, what else do we know about covenants and people entering into covenants in the culture? How do they do it? The cutting, they called it the cutting covenant. Okay. And there was blood involved. Okay. Actually, uh, typically the ceremony itself involved the slaughter of an animal or animals. Okay. So there was the actual cutting of an animal. Okay. And the term that was used to refer to this kind of a ceremony was called the cutting of a covenant. The very term is used in our chapter here. You didn't notice it because of the way we translate it today because if they wrote it the way uh, it really should be written, uh, we wouldn't understand it today. But down in verse 18, notice it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That word made there, which the, your, your translation translates made, is actually the Hebrew word for cut. Okay? And so what it actually says there is on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. Okay? So there's this idea, this, this idea of cutting a covenant. 
And so whenever a covenant was established, they said, well, so-and-so cut a covenant. And the reason they said it that way was because in most cases when a covenant was made between two parties, particularly a scissor and vassal covenant was made, there was always uh, typically the cutting of an animal or the, uh, I could say the sacrifice of an animal. They weren't actually technically a sacrifice, but there was the cutting of the animal, the slaughtering of an animal or more that was involved. Okay, anything else? Okay, now let me just add a couple more things that we know from archaeology and from history about this whole thing about cutting a covenant and covenant. It's covenants. Is uh, one, one of the things that's important for us to know is that covenants had a particular form. They were so pervasive in the culture because remember, in order to to get along in order to have define your relationship with somebody in a patriarchal culture, you had to be related, right? Okay, you had to be a brother or sister or father or son or you know uncle or you know you had to be related. Okay, well, what if you weren't related? Well, if you weren't related, you had to establish a fictional relationship. What's called a fictive kinship. We've talked about this. Okay, the covenant was the way this happened. Through the covenant, the fictive kinship was established. Okay, so that in a parity covenant, once the covenant is is established and, and and instituted, the two parties of the covenant would refer to one another as brothers. Okay, because now they have this fictive kinship. Okay, similarly in a suzerain vassal covenant, after the par, after the covenant has been established. The suzerain would typically be referred to as the father and the vassals would be referred to as the sons. Again, it's this whole idea of fictive kinship. And because it's a patriarchal culture throughout the ancient Middle East or the ancient Near East, because it is a patriarchal culture, this idea of covenant permeates the whole culture. Everybody in the culture understands it. Just like when I say golden arches, what do you think of? McDonald's, okay? You don't think of a couple, you know, golden, you know, St. Louis arches. You, know, you don't think of that. You think of McDonald's because golden arches permeates our culture. And anywhere you go in the world, when you see the golden arches, you think one thing, Big Mac, okay? It permeates the culture. In this, and, and we, of course, have many things in our culture like that. In the same way, this idea of covenant permeates the culture. You don't have. You didn't have to explain this idea to Abram. It was second nature to him. It was second nature to everybody in the everybody in in, in the region, in, in that part of the world. They just understood this whole idea of covenant and all these ambiguous things that we've had to talk about and delineate because we're not part of a patriarchal culture. All these things we were just talking about about covenant just now that we have to look back and explore and figure out and go, okay, what's this about? And you know, what's this cutting covenant? No. You know, we have to figure all that out, but Abram didn't. It's all second nature to him. Now, the second thing is that is that because it was so pervasive and so common, there was actually an established form or formula in which these covenants would be written. And this varied through the centuries, so it's significantly different from the second millennium B.C. to when you get to the first millennium B.C. 
Okay, so there is a difference, uh, uh, an interesting difference or distinction in the form that these covenants took. But typically, they had several parts to them. And, and now I'm speaking of, of the Hittite covenant, covenants that, that were written and, and established, ones we can look at uh, from the second millennium B.C. around the time of Abram. Okay? And they consisted of, first of all, a prologue. And in the prologue of the covenant... I'm speaking here now of suzerain vassal covenants. In the prologue of the covenant, the, the suzerain would introduce himself. He would say, I am king so-and-so. And he would go through his list of titles and, you know, and he might go on and on and on and on about how glorious and how great and everything he was, okay? And, and, and establishing who he was in the prologue. Okay? And then typically after that, there would be a historical section. Now this... The historical section eventually disappeared in later covenants when you get to the Assyrian period uh, in the first millennium for a reason. It disappears, but it's quite prominent in the, in the covenants of the, of the second uh, millennium B.C. And, and the, in the historical section, the, the suzerain would detail, having just talked about how glorious and great he was and who he was and what, all his names and all that sort of thing. And then he would go on and he would talk about all the great things he's already done for the vassal. And they may have a long history going back hundreds of years. And so they're establishing a new covenant. Maybe, maybe a, 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 a king, a vassal king has died and his son has, has taken his place. And so a new covenant needs to be written. And so in the historical part of the covenant, the, the suzerain would detail all the great things he did for this guy's father. And how I took care of him and I defended him and I did all these sorts of things and we had this great relationship. So there's this historical aspect to it. Okay? Then once the historical aspect of the covenant is established, then they would go forward and it would move into the stipulations or the, uh, the requirements of the covenant. And in the requirements of the covenant, the various responsibilities of the two parties would be set out. And then following that uh, would come the section of blessings all the great benefits you're going to get from being in this covenant, and then finally, the consequences if you break Hesed. The consequences if you violate covenant loyalty. Okay? And so this covenant would be written, and then there would be a covenant ceremony. And in this covenant ceremony, they would cut the animal. Okay? Or animals, as the case may be. Now, one of the prevalent ways we do this, we see a classic example of this, incidentally, in Jeremiah chapter 34, uh, where God refers to this with, uh, with the Israelites. <clears throat> but let me back up for a second before I go on to that. The interesting thing about that, that formula that I've given, you see some of that here in chapter 15. But when you get to Sinai, you get to Israel's covenant with God at Sinai, you see every one of those elements explicitly in God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. It's really fascinating. You go back and read. That, you know, we studied the, in our encounter with Horeb study that we did uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, and we looked all at Sinai. And, and, and you go back and you read and study and look at that covenant that God established with Israel. And it follows this exact pattern, this exact formula that I just described to you. Okay. Well, so then they would come to the, come to the ceremony. And, in, and in, this, in this period of time, in this second millennium, uh, B.C., around the time of Abram, in these suzerain vassal covenants or treaties, in, in the ceremony itself, one of the things that was done in the ceremony, in addition to reading the, reading the actual contract or document itself and that sort of thing, is that they would take 
certain animals and they would cut these animals in half. And then they would lay them on the ground opposite each other so there is a pathway between them. Okay, So you have these carcasses laying on the ground and bleeding out all over the place and you have this, what I refer to as a uh, bloody alley down between these animals. And, and typically at this point, then, at least the vassal would be required to walk down between these animals. And in walking down between these animals, he is declaring his commitment to this covenant. And he is also recognizing what will happen to him if he does not keep it. I will be dismembered like these animals. So that's kind of a nice little gentle way of saying, you know, we suggest you, you know, keep Hesed on this thing, you know. Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. Okay, that's the historical context that permeates Abram's mind. And God now comes to him before Abram even realizes what's happening and says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. What does that sound like? Sounds like the prologue and history of a covenant, doesn't it? Okay? Sounds like the prologue and the history of a covenant. And what God is doing at this point in response to Abram's question, God, how can I know? that I will possess this land. It's been ten years. How can I know? I mean, I know you've told me, but how can I know? But before Abram gets a chance to even ask the question, God has already begun to declare the covenant. Why? What has happened that has precipitated God beginning to enter into a covenant with Abram? What happened before verse 7? Verse 6, he was declared righteous. He believed God and he was declared righteous. And at that point, God says, I'm going to enter into a covenant with Abram. And God begins to articulate the covenant. And it doesn't take the elaborate form that the Sinai covenant takes uh, in, in, in parallel to a typical cultural uh, uh, covenant in the culture of the time but it still shows the marks of the form that he begins first with the prologue I am the Lord what more is there to say after he said that okay I am the Lord okay and then he goes into the historical part who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldees and I brought you to this place to give you this place to possess it okay so it's the historical part I've been gracious and I've been and we've had a good thing going here and I love you and I'm taking care of you and then what does he tell Abram? Okay, to do what? Okay, he tells him to bring these animals. Now notice, what does God tell him? Hmm? 
Okay? He's very specific about animals and he tells him to bring him. What does God not tell him to do? Pardon? He doesn't tell him to cut him in half. Okay? He just tells him to bring him. Okay? This is fascinating to me. God says, God says, I am the Lord God. I've had this history with you. Go get some animals. So Abram goes out and he gets these animals. What's going through Abram's mind at this point while he's out fishing around for his animals? This is the covenant. This is the covenant. This is Abram. He's been walking with God and trying to obey God and listen to God and believe God and God's been coming to him and speaking to him. But he wants to know how he's going to know. How, how can I know that I will receive this land? And he's out there looking for these heifers and these goats and birds. And he's looking for. And while he's doing it, he's going, I am the Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Canaan. Go get these animals. And it dawns on Abram that the eternal, everlasting God, creator of heaven and earth, who dwells in unapproachable light and is shrouded in darkness, intends to enter into a fictive kinship relationship with him in order that he might know that everything God has promised him will come true. What was it like the first time it dawned on you that God wanted to enter into a covenant with you? What was it like the first time you realized what it meant to be a child of God and for Him to be your Father? And so Abram, he goes out and he gets these animals and he brings them back and he doesn't need any instructions at this point because he knows what's happening. So he didn't have to have God tell him to cut the animals. He knows this is what God is doing. Because God has already stated the first part of the covenant in the form that Abram instinctively knows because it's part of his culture. And so Abram brings these animals back and he cuts them and he lays them down on the ground opposite one another. The, the big, larger animals cut in half and the two birds just laid opposite each other. It is interesting, of course, and you may have noticed this if you studied the passage ahead of time. It is interesting that these specific animals are the same animals that are designated in the, in the law for the sacrifices. Okay? They're exactly the same animals. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this is a sacrifice here. This is not a sacrifice. The animals that are offered, or the animals that are slaughtered in the covenant ceremony are not a sacrifice. They're part of a covenant ceremony. And they have a certain signification, okay? They signify the parties to the covenant. And they signify what will happen to the parties of the covenant if they don't. maintain Hesed, covenant faithfulness. Okay? That's what they represent. So there's no sin offering here, anything like that, so don't read anything like that into it. That's not that's not in the passage here, okay? <clears throat> but but so Abram lays lays these things out and then as the sun begins to set, it says things get really dark and 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 a great terror comes on Abraham. It uh, says uh Excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why I can't find it. Uh, he says, uh, 
he brought him all the verse 10. He brought all these things to him and he cut them in half, etc., etc. Oh, don't let me miss this. Uh, in verse 11, it says the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, throughout Scripture, remember this is a vision, so so everything in here has some significance, some some uh, symbolism to it. Okay. <clears throat> Typically, what do birds of prey represent in Scripture? The enemies, and particularly the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God. Okay, those are the birds of prey. Okay, and so, so there's just this little kind of parenthetical comment here about the birds of prey and Abram driving them away is just to remind us that as God is is beginning to enter into this covenant with Abram, that there is a great adversary. There is a great enemy of this covenant. There is one who does not want this covenant to take place. And Abram takes it as his responsibility to guard this covenant. It's important to him. It's important to God. And Abram will not let the enemy of God have a part of this covenant. And he drives him away. Okay? Well... Then comes the the sun begins to set. It's starting to get dark, and then it actually does get quite dark. Uh, in verse twelve, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness came and fell upon him. So Abram falls asleep. There's this deep sleep, flashing red light, deep sleep. What does that remind you of? Adam. What happened when Adam went into a deep sleep? He lost the rib. rib. Come on! (laughs) What happened? He got a helper suitable for him. Now, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And he's going to get something absolutely astonishing and remarkable. He is going to enter into a relationship with God. And so, but in this process, there is this great terror and great darkness. Why? Well, because he's dealing with this majestic God. So as God comes down to tell Abram all these wonderful, great things about himself, or about what he's going to do, Abram is still reminded he's dealing with this great, awesome, unapproachable God. That's one of the objections I have to the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel because it's all about the bennies and it's not about the glory of God. But Abram here is overwhelmed by the glory of God, so he's filled with terror as he hears the voice of God speak to him. And then God tells him about his descendants and the land. And God actually condescends to explain to Abram why he's going to have to wait. He hasn't done that to me very often. (laughs) But he does on occasion, I suppose, give us some clue of why he waits. But here he's telling Abram why he has to wait to actually possess the land. Because, he says, your descendants are going to go into a land they don't possess and they're going to be enslaved and they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. It's not a really pretty picture here, is it? Okay. But they're going to be enslaved, they're going to be oppressed, 
And then he says, after that, he says, I'll judge the nation whom they will serve and then they will come out with many possessions. So he's telling Abram, look, your descendants, we're going to do this, but before this happens, they're going to have to go away to some other land. Obviously, he's talking about their captivity in Egypt, right? And he's saying, he's saying they're going to have to go away and then eventually I'll deliver them and then I'll bring them back. Now, just stop for a minute and let's remember what did we learn about Genesis when we first started our study of the book of Genesis? When was it written? By whom was it written? Pardon? Written by Moses when? In the wilderness. Okay. But presumably, since Sinai occurs only six weeks after they leave Egypt, presumably it occurs after Sinai. Okay. So, so in other words, this book, Genesis, is put in the hands of the people of Israel while they're out in the wilderness post-Sinai. And they realize that God promised Abram that they would inherit the land long before they went into captivity in Egypt but they were in captivity of Egypt by the foreknowledge of God. None of it took God by surprise. He brought them out. And then as he goes on in the covenant in the later verses here in 15, he'll explain how they're eventually going to enter back into the land and possess the land. And God details all of that. And for the children of Israel in the wilderness, if they had hearts of faith, this would have been a stunning thing to read. Wow. This is all being... I'm living in the generation when all this is being fulfilled. Okay. So, so God details all of this for Abram and tells Abram and then he gives this little kind of parenthetical statement to Abram just to assure Abram that he's not part of this whole slavery thing. Okay. Now, Abram, this isn't going to happen to you. Okay. You're going to die. You're going to go to your fathers in peace and you're going to die and be buried at a good old age. Okay. And as we go forward in the story of Abraham, we'll see that's exactly how it unfolds. So, Abram has... Two things clear from the Lord. One is that he's not going to see the possession of the land in his lifetime because all this other stuff has to unfold first, but that he himself will die in peace and live to a ripe old age, to a good old age. Okay. Well, after God has said that, uh, then, he, then he picks it up. Uh, and completes the story. He says uh, in verse 16, Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So he explains to Abram now exactly why it has to take so long. They're going to go out. They're going to be in here. You know, they're going to have all that ugly time in Egypt and everything. He doesn't tell them Egypt. But he, they're going to have all this. And then they're going to come back. And they're going to come back in the land in the fourth generation. 400 years. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, that's what a point I was making last week. Sometimes God delays because of timing. He's doing other things. And God could not give the land to Abram at this point because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. Well, so what was God really waiting for 
all these hundreds of years, and it was more than 400 because we have to go through the rest of the life of Abram and the rest of the life of Isaac and the rest of the life, or a good part of the life of Jacob before the 400 years begins. So we're talking here a considerable amount of time. What was God really waiting for for all, all this time on the Amorites? What was he waiting for? Was he? I think he was waiting for him to repent. But he, yeah, he does both. And ultimately, he knows the outcome. But we understand from 1 Peter that the reason that the Lord delays, what appears to be delay, is because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? So God knows that the Amorites are not going to repent. But he's waiting so that they would repent. But they take this time that is given to them to repent and they use it for what? Iniquity. So they're just making things things worse and worse and worse. Have you ever done that in your life? Have you ever exploited the patience of God and used it for iniquity? It's what the Amorites are doing. And they keep doing it and they keep doing it until it gets so bad that God spews them out of the land. Now, I want to remind you that He doesn't just do that with the Amorites. He does it with the Israelites too, remember? He waited and waited and waited and waited on them and when they didn't repent, He did exactly the same thing with them. He spewed them out of the land. The only difference between the Amorites and the Israelites is with the Israelites, you have the covenant of Abraham which eventually brings them back into the land. But they suffered the same consequence that the Amorites suffered. Okay? So we don't toy with the patience of God. Okay? God is waiting. And He's waiting for the Amorites to complete their iniquity. And when they have, they will be spewed out of the land. They will be, uh, they will be removed from the land. And the children of Israel will then come into the land. Okay? And now it's nighttime. It's totally dark. And suddenly there appears in the vision of Abram a smoking furnace and a flaming torch. So we have smoke, we have fire, and we have darkness. What does that sound like to you? Does that ring a bell? Pardon? Okay. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. And what else? Since we're thinking about... Pardon? Okay. As long as we're thinking about the wilderness, God's presence where? Come on, folks. Remember our encounter at Horeb study? All the smoke and fire and darkness on Sinai. It's the presence of God. Okay? And it's when God displays His, comes to, to, to display, to be present with the people and display His glory, but He can't, he can't just display it wide open because it would do what? It'd kill us all, right? So he shrouds it in darkness and in smoke. But from down on the bottom of the mountain, they're looking up and on top of the mountain, there's all this darkness and cloud and smoke and lightning and fire and there's all this stuff going on at once on the top of the mountain. It's the presence and the glory and the majesty of this incredibly holy, righteous God. 
And this is what Abram has seen on a much smaller scale because he's just one little guy and it's all right there. It's not up on a mountain in a whole nation. So it's just it's on a much smaller scale. But it's this this little furnace. It's a little round pot that they used to cook in, okay? And they'd put their their coals in it or whatever. And, you know, and so it's a smoking pot. It's, it's a reference to a, a furnace that they would cook in, okay? And a flaming torch. It represents the presence of God. And what does God do? God passes between the pieces. God passes through the bloody alley. Where's Abram? <laughs> He's asleep. <laughs> He's asleep. He's dreaming all this stuff. He's on the outside. What did Abram want to know? What did he ask God? How can I know that I will receive this land? He knew it. God had promised it. But remember, what he's, what he's really asking for is, this is hard, God. It's been ten years and, and maybe longer. And however long it is, I've got, to believe, I've got to trust God. I really want to trust you on this. I need some real assurance. And so God gives him assurance in the form of a covenant. But when it comes down to that last part of the covenant, when it comes to that last part of the ceremony, where typically, at a minimum, the vassal would walk through the bloody alley, the vassal in this case is sleeping over on the side. And the Lord of glory and the King of kings and the Prince of peace and He who dwells in an approachable light comes down and condescends to traverse that bloody alley. And he's telling Abram two things. One thing Abram is asking in his question is, God, how can I know? That is, how can I know, God, you will keep your word? And as God walks through traverses this bloody alley as he be- walks between these animals. Remember the symbolism that's so ingrained in cultures in, in Abram's mind because of his culture. What typically is said when the person walks down that bloody alley, he's saying, what was done to these animals, let it be done to me. But you can't do that to God. You can't destroy God. God is immutable and unchangeable. He cannot be dismembered. He cannot be destroyed. And because He cannot be destroyed, neither can His Word. And so it's as if to say to Abram, just as ludicrous as it is to think that I could ever end up like these animals. It is ludicrous to think that my word would fail. And I have spoken. And my word is sure. And you can stake your life on it. Well, that sells part of Abram's dilemma, but not the whole dilemma. Because to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of question about God failing but I have a whole lot of question about me failing.
And so Abram's got to be struggling not only with the question of, okay, in this covenant relationship, God, are you going to be faithful? And he's satisfied. God will be faithful. <laughs> he cannot be destroyed and his, work, his word will stand true no matter what. But what if Abram breaches Hesed? What if Abram fails to keep covenant loyalty? But in Abram's place, the Lord of glory has traversed the bloody alley. In Abram's place, Abram stood outside. He just watched from the sides. He was asleep. He was doing nothing. And this answers the question that I asked at the beginning of our lesson this morning was how is it that God can reckon faith as righteousness? How is it that God, just because of my faith, can look at me, the despicable low worm of a sinner that I am, look at me and erase that word faith and write in the word righteous and count it as the righteousness of His own beloved Son? How can He do that? It is because His Son traversed the bloody alley for me. He went down that bloody alley. He said, if this covenant is ever broken, let the consequences of that violation of Hesed fall on me. And as, 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 as God walked down that bloody alley, that night in Abram's vision, as he walked down that alley, he was saying to Abram, Abram, when you fail this covenant, I will bear in my broken body the consequences of your unfaithfulness. Is that not glorious? Is that not wonderful to know? Because I don't know about you, I haven't really evaluated this morning yet, but I got a pretty good hunch that probably this morning, at some point, I've probably not been faithful. Certainly this week I know there are times when I've not been faithful. We won't even talk about this month or this year. But He has traversed the bloody alley for me. And He has declared me righteous. And you too, if you have cast your faith on Him. Okay? Next week we'll go on into the next chapter.